After years of neglect, education policymakers, researchers, and reformers are increasingly turning their attention to the role of curriculum in improving teacher effectiveness and student outcomes. They're developing new models aligned to new standards, testing their efficacy, and in some cases encouraging educators to adopt those with the strongest results. But could it be that a curriculum developed more than a half century ago has already proven its worth? Should educators be taking another look at the evidence on direct instruction? I'm Marty West, editor of EdNext, and I'm joined today by Robert Pondicio, senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and senior advisor to Democracy Prep Public Schools, a charter school network based in Harlem. He's also the author of a blog post on direct instruction that's available now at educationnext.org. Robert, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So what is direct instruction? Well, uh, it's, it's important to differentiate, I think, between uh, what I would call capital D direct instruction and small d direct instruction. Uh, capital D direct instruction, which is what this uh, blog post and this meta-analysis were about, has been around in some form or another for about a half a century. It's associated with a guy named Zig Edelman, who uh, I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with. Uh, the, the, the product that people show that seems to show up in classrooms the most, that's uh, an example of capital D direct instruction, is uh, Reading Mastery, which has been published uh, for some years now by, I believe, McGraw-Hill. It's a literacy curriculum, uh, and, and it's quite scripted. Um, small d direct instruction is, has uh, been in bad odor, as, as it were, for quite a while in, in education. Uh, that's simply giving explicit direction. I mean, as a teacher, I was always told that direct instruction was to be invo- avoided, uh, that you should uh, you know, valorize things like discovery learning and letting kids struggle. Um, you know, there are certainly a lot of commonalities between capital D direct instruction and small d pedagogical direct instruction. Uh, but this meta-analysis was about the curriculum products um, authored by Engelman and others. Yeah, so as you just noted, your blog post was inspired by a new article in the Review of Educational Research, a very respected journal published by the American Educational Research Association. And this article, the lead authors, Gene Stockard and Timothy Wood of the University of Oregon, sought to synthesize the results of studies of capital D direct instruction conducted over 50 years, from 1966 to 2016, what caught your eye about this meta-analysis? What led you to respond to it? Well, I, I'm being a little bit arch. Um, I refer to this as the, the Rodney Dangerfield curriculum because it gets no respect. To those of us who were old enough to remember um, the late comedian Rodney Dangerfield, that was his stock line. It was fake of no respect. So, you know, and I'm a curriculum um, uh, advocate, I guess I would say. I've always been interested in curriculum as a reform lever. So here is this, this curriculum that has been around in one form or another for literally half a century. Now you've got uh, over 300 studies uh, over 50 years saying, hey, this stuff works. But everything I've ever heard as a teacher, everything you see out in, uh, in, in public, seems to suggest, oh, this is a scripted curriculum, this is old-fashioned, nobody does this. And it raises, Marty, a very good question, which is, why don't we do this? Um, if we take ourselves seriously as an evidence-based profession, and I think we do, um, then isn't this something that we should be a little bit more respectful of, or at least a little bit more curious about? Your uh, comment about Rodney Dangerfield actually reminds me a little bit of an article that James Traub wrote in the New York Times Magazine quite a while ago talking about evidence use in education research, and he was talking specifically about project follow-through, a very large 
evaluation commissioned by the U.S. Department of Education back in the 70s, and it looked at a variety of whole school reform models, and the one that was shown to have positive results was direct instruction. He said the problem with the results wasn't that nothing worked, it was that the wrong thing worked, and people didn't know how to respond. <laughs> that's the response to people who characterize direct instruction, whether with a capital D or a lowercase d, as constraining teachers' autonomy, their creativity, their, uh, I don't know, ability to respond to individual student needs. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, and and I, I wrote a piece for Ednext about two years ago, um, not about direct instruction, but about this, uh, this exact conundrum that, uh, that we make teaching too hard for mere mortals, I think was the title. And, and it really tried to get at this question, Marty, which is um, why do we insist on making uh, teaching too difficult for, for folks? In other words, you know, lesson design is rocket science, so to speak. In other words, it's very, very difficult if we're going to be evidence-based and scientific about this. Well, but, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that the lesson that I design at my kitchen table may be fantastic, but I don't have the ability to go out and uh, test it and, and uh, get feedback on it, etc., uh, in any rigorous way. So what a direct instruction does is it is part of that iterative process. Um, you know, and, and let me be clear, I think there's also, it's fair to say that some direct instruction folks can fetishize this to a degree. You know, that they will say, um, you know, no, uh, you've got to deliver it just so, you've got to follow the script as opposed to um, you know, a good teacher, for example, will notice that his or her class is not tracking on something and adapt it on the fly. So you can't uh, you know, turn teachers into automatons about this. Uh, but I do think all of this invites the question, hey, what do we really want our teachers to be doing? We want them to be you know, going on Google and Pinterest for 20 hours a week, um, staring at a lesson plan book and saying, what am I going to teach tomorrow? Or do we want them to be more expert uh, lesson deliverers and diagnosticians? I, you know, I will confess I'm very much part of that latter uh, school of thought. 
No, but I can hear someone responding to that by saying, sure, I agree, we don't want teachers wasting time reinventing the wheel, but the lesson plans that we help them access and provide for them need not rely on the sage on the stage being very explicit and not leaving any room for student discovery of knowledge. Uh, you know, so isn't that something of a false dichotomy? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of one. I mean, every every new teacher hears exactly that phrase that you just uh, invoked, Marty. You know, you shouldn't be the sage on the stage. You should be the guide on the side. I mean, I refer to it as a homily somewhat dismissively, but because I think these are well-intentioned notions, but they do tend to lead teachers astray. I mean, there's obviously, as this meta-study shows, really good data that suggests, hey, direct instruction works. So just because it's not popular, just because it's not the pedagogical flavor of um, the last half century, uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't, it shouldn't be an arrow in our quiver as teachers. In other words, I worry that advice like that says to teachers, you should never uh, give um, uh, direct example. You should never engage in direct instruction. Direct instruction is a dirty word, and that's the false dichotomy I think that you're alluding to. Um, you know, good teachers have lots of different modalities. They, they have lots of different techniques for getting through the students. We've been sort of talking around this, but just to make it explicit, what would you characterize as the opposite of direct instruction? Yeah, I probably just spread ahead discovery learning, right? And, and let me be clear, I've been in, in classrooms uh, where there's not just minimal, but no direct instruction. And, and under the right conditions with a, uh, a, a well-prepared teacher, that can be quite powerful. I think the other, you know, the elephant in the room here that we're perhaps not discussing is, is you can't, I would argue, as, as uh, putting on my policy hat for a moment, you cannot expect that uh, 3.7 million full-time classroom teachers are all going to be able to do discovery learning or project-based learning or, or any of the more um, discovery-oriented pedagogies effectively. So there's something to be said, I think, for teachers of average sentience, because let me be clear, if you've got 3.5 million teachers uh, or 3.5 million of anybody doing anything, you have to account for people of average sentience because that's who you have in our classrooms. Um, so direct instruction, I think, could be potentially powerful in, in freeing up teacher capacity, as it were. In other words, when I think of my own experience as a brand-new teacher, I did spend you know, 10, 20, 30 hours a week uh, tyrannized by that empty plan book, thinking, good Lord, what am I going to teach tomorrow? That's time that I did not spend looking at student work, uh, developing relationships with students and their families. Any of these things can be uh, of, of great value in terms of uh, advancing student outcomes, uh, and, and simply planning lessons for the next day or the next week. Well, you've just put a very positive spin on, uh, I guess, an approach some people would characterize as teacher-proofing the curriculum. Yeah, but again, I, I, don't, think, I don't see it that way, and I mean it earnestly. In other words, what, what's my best value add as a teacher? Is it that I can plan my own lessons and then not have time to, to look at the work that comes as a result of it? Um, you know, I, I, can, I can promise you that as a new teacher and even a relatively experienced one, um, my value add is, is less uh, the planning of the lesson than examining what comes from it and then intervening in diagnosing. Um, you know, and, and again, um, sure, like any teacher, I love to, to develop my own lessons from time to time, but I'm not necessarily sure it's uh, best, for, best use of my time. Uh, there's only so many hours in a week uh, to be doing that full time. 
Now, of course, not everyone is going to be convinced by this meta-analysis of capital D direct instruction or that it sort of points in the direction of the principles underlying it. Uh, cognitive psychologist Dan Willingham pointed out on Twitter he circulated the new meta-analysis, but he also quickly noted that advocates of discovery-based instruction have competing meta-analyses that purport to show that their preferred approach can also produce dramatic gains so long as students are provided with the appropriate guidance. How do you interpret, the, and how do you think teachers should make sense of these competing claims that are out there? And you know, does it suggest that maybe it's not as important which one of these broad approaches you take, but which one you, you know, but how well you do whatever you uh, select? Well, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, Marty, you're probably a better, question, better person to answer that question than I am. You're the, uh, the Harvard PhD researcher. I just write about this stuff. Um, but my, 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 my sense as a teacher is that you, you shouldn't impose either of these. In other words, I'm kind of, uh, even though when I'm having a little bit of sport with it here, saying that, um, you know, what do you want, 50, 50, uh, 50 years of meta-analysis or your own, or your own preferences? Well, they're starting to be fed for preferences. In other words, if a teacher uh, really dislikes teaching this way, um, then I don't see much wisdom in imposing it upon him or her, provided, important caveat, provided they are effective with other methods. Um, you know, I think we spend a little bit too much time in this work uh, trying to say, well, the evidence says X, so we're going to do X, and then we end, end up implementing it badly because you're kind of you know, pushing it on the unwilling, as it were. Um, I would argue, again, as a teacher, that it's a lot easier to teach uh, with direct instruction methods than it is uh, through pure uh, you know, constructivist or, or um, you know, guide on the side, as it were, methodology. Um, but that's just me, and that's my preference. But again, I do think that the bar is a little bit higher for, for more um, you know, constructivist approaches, um, just because it, it, it is just more difficult to, to teach that way. You've got to be much better prepared than you would need to be for a state of direct instruction. Yeah, I do think the question ultimately does come down to how well you do whatever you choose. And if that's the case, then the big question becomes which one on which approach on average gets done better. As, as a new teacher, I would have killed to have um, a, a, yes, a scripted curriculum because I was still learning my way around the classroom and worry about classroom management and things like that. So, um, boy, would I have loved to have those 20 or 30 hours a week back that I spent learning lessons. It would have enabled me to become much more effective as a teacher much more quickly, uh, and I think we can't discount that either. Well, my guest today has been Robert Pondicio, Senior Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and Senior Advisor to Democracy Prep Public Schools. His blog post, Meta Analysis, Confirms Effectiveness of an Old School Approach, is available now at educationnext.org. Robert, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.